This last week we had one of our membership classes and had a number of people from all over the place. Uh, And one of the things that you'll learn quickly if you're not from the Phoenix metro area is we have some general peculiarities that set us apart with our collective identity. In other words, not all of us do all of these things, but these are things that generally characterize us. You'll learn that for one thing, because we live in the desert, we're a desert-dwelling people, pretty much anywhere you go, somebody is going to hand you a bottle of water. And it's not just for health, it's for survival. We're worried that if you don't drink it soon, you might evaporate along with the rest of the water in the area. Now, uh, you know that this is a problem, because if you look at our maps, you might see all of these beautiful running streams. And if you were to run to one of them, what you'd probably find out quickly is there is no water in them. We put rivers on our maps that are full of nothing but dirt and rocks. Now, sometimes there's water, but most of the times there's not. Uh, We as a people know that natives are exotic. Most people who are here are actually from somewhere else, and that's why I think we are also a very independent people. Now, the the best of that is that we are free thinkers. Uh, We are entrepreneurial by nature. But the worst of it is, is that we don't really like people telling us what to do. On the other hand, we like our guns. We don't trust people who don't like our guns. We bake cookies in our cars. We are a a very strange people. But when you think about our text this morning, we're back in Romans 2, and what you'll find is the same way that Arizonans are known for all kinds of unique things, Jews of Paul's day were distinguished by circumcision and their possession of the law. Those are the things that they saw as being unique to their identity, unique to their position before God. Uh, They were those who had the special Mosaic covenant as identified by those two things. Now, if you read through the Old Testament, what you'll find is is that it moves along. God quickly shows that there is a major distinction of peoples in the Old Testament. And that distinction is marked by Jews, God's chosen people, whom He made a special covenant with at Mount Sinai, and Gentiles, which is everybody that's not a Jew. So if you wanted to become a Jew, you needed to, to be circumcised and keep the law. Uh, but if you did not do those things, then you would, of course, be a Gentile. Now, I think it's hard for us to understand the meaningfulness of circumcision to the people of God. But God gave circumcision to Abraham in Genesis 17 as a sign of His special, everlasting covenant. He promised Abraham that He was going to give him an offspring that would undo all of the effects of sin and Satan in Genesis 3, as well as bringing them peace with their external enemies and peace with God. He would raise up a king from the line of Abraham who would rule over the nations. And He would rule with a life-giving kind of rule. Well, that was what circumcision meant for all of those who were circumcised. They found themselves in the line of the great promises that were made to Abraham. So God commanded Abraham when he made this covenant with him to cut the foreskin of every male child when he was eight years or eight days old. Now, in addition, any outside male who decided to become a Jew, again, he would have to be circumcised along with all of his household. And the law of Moses required that Israel practice this as well in Leviticus 12.3 so that 
their offspring were considered to be partakers of this Abrahamic promise. Now, this sounds, you have to admit, like a very strange sign. I mean, it would be mostly hidden. And in the first century A.D., uh, it's, it's interesting the, the way that we find this sign being explained. In fact, Josephus, as he was talking about it, he was a historian, a Greek historian who was also Jewish. He explained that the intent of this sign was to identify Jewish males and keep them from mixing with others. He, he wanted to make sure, the sign was to, meant to make sure that Jews were, were not mixing with others and following other gods, but instead following Yahweh faithfully. So that was one meaning of this sign. But more recently, Dr. John Mead traced this sign in an Egyptian background. And what he found was circumcision in Egyptian background, which probably influenced an Israelite understanding, is that it was a sign that was given to the, the priest serving in the temple in Egypt. And what's beautiful about this is we know that Israel belonged to God as His firstborn son, and they as a people are later called a kingdom of priests and a holy nation in Exodus 19.6. So circumcision therefore meant identification with Yahweh, the God who made covenant with them. The God who said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And Jews were consecrated to His service. On the eighth day, uh, they were the ones who were, would be known as the, the eighth day circumcision guys. So circumcision played a significant role in their sense of identity as we can see in Romans 2. Now some taught that a circumcised Jew would not enter Gehenna or the place of the fiery judgment. And, and we know that many Jews actually suffered to maintain faithfulness to circumcision. In fact, just a couple of centuries before Jesus showed up, we find that Antiochus Epiphanes made circumcising a child a capital offense and pious Jews chose to die rather than to profane the Holy Covenant and continued to circumcise their children. So you can imagine they were suffering for this sign. They were trusting in the promise. This was a major way that they viewed and identified themselves. Well, this morning we're back in our Roman series in Romans 2, 25-29, where Paul moves from the law to focusing more centrally on the relationship between circumcision and the law. And here's what we're going to see. If you take notes, this is our big idea, you can write this down. It's that true Jew, the true Jew serves God out of a heart circumcised by the Spirit of God. The true Jew serves God out of a, a heart circumcised by the Spirit of God. Now, first, we'll notice that Paul says that disobedience turns a Jew into a Gentile in verse 25. Disobedience turns a Jew into a Gentile. Now, speaking to Jews who believe their circumcision will exempt them from God's wrath on the last day, Paul says this in verse 25. You can look there with me. He says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Now, Paul, first, doesn't say circumcision is of no value, but that it is indeed of value. And Paul's going to flesh out the advantages of physical circumcision later. We'll see that in Romans 3. But for now, physical circumcision has value, but you have to ask for what? 
Now, when I traveled to Israel, I had to, to translate, get a sort of a, a translation of my money from the U.S. dollar into shekels. And the reason is, is because if I were to take my U.S. dollars in many places, they would not accept them, they would not have value. And so the question here, I believe, is where is it that we're understanding the value of circumcision being used? What did Jews hope their circumcision would have value for? Well, Paul uses the same word for value in other contexts. In fact, he uses it in a similar context. It's different, but in a similar context in Galatians 5.2. Now, there, in Galatians 5.2, you'll remember that Judaizers were trying to convince Gentiles that they needed circumcision plus Jesus for salvation. Circumcision plus Jesus. And Paul says there, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage or value for you. So I take the value of Romans 2.25 and Galatians 5.2 to be with reference to the final judgment, which has been in view since Romans 2.5. See, Jews wished that Paul stopped right there. Circumcision is indeed of value, but Paul doesn't stop. Notice he goes on. He says, if you obey the law. A conditional statement. A conditional statement that really reorients everything. See, circumcision is indeed of value if, if you obey the law. Now here's the question. Does Paul say a circumcised Jew who obeys the Mosaic law will be justified apart from Jesus? I think Paul seems to say, yes, indeed. Now hold on, some of you like, should have your gospel radars going off, like that's not right, but just hang with me. Here's the problem. That Jew does not exist. See, we know here Paul is going with this argument. Uh, he's going in, in Romans 3.20 to where he will say, for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, just as there is no innocent Gentile tribesman, who meets God's standards of obedience. There is no obedient Jew who does so either. See, Paul warns in Galatians 5.3, everyone who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. And Paul says, God does not grade on a curve. He doesn't grade on a curve. If you break it at a single point, you failed it. Uh, this reminds me a little bit uh, of a class that I took in high school, my, my calculus professor, after the test, he would put all the students' grades on the wall. And there would be two grades for each student. The first grade was your actual grade, which was really scary a lot of the time. The second grade was your grade on the bell curve, where he adjusted for everybody else and how they didn't like score 100%, so you did better than what you originally did. I think some of us think that God tends to kind of have two scores, right? Like you have the, the, the score before the bell curve and then the one after it. Well, that's not the way that God displays His justice if you're seeking to be saved through Mosaic Law. See, God's perfect, impartial justice does not bend. If God were to bend His perfect justice, if He were to contort it, 
it would mean that it was not perfect justice. And that would mean that that God was in some sense not perfectly good and just. And that's really, I believe, the kind of picture that is being developed here. If justice bends, it breaks. And Paul's not done though. Notice the second part of verse 25. He highlights a radical reversal that takes place for the circumcised Jew who breaks the law. If you think that the Jews would have been already frustrated with his little conditional statement, this, this would have been too much to bear. He says, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes what? Uncircumcision. Now, Jews who break the law, they go through a radical change. Now, it's, I think it's difficult for us to unpack how graphic and confrontational these words would have been to a first century Jew. I mean, the word for uncircumcision here literally comes from the word foreskin used everywhere in the Greek Old Testament. This shocking image does not have a physical circumcision reversal procedure in mind, though. No, it speaks of a Jew's covenantal status before God. So a Jew who breaks the law of Moses becomes like an uncircumcised Gentile annulling the value of their circumcision. Now hear me what that means. That means that all of those promises that remain throughout the Old Testament for the people of God, those promises that they thought their circumcision and holding the law procured are no longer credited to their accounts. I think it's hard for many, if not all of us, because I'm not sure if we have any Jews here ethnically, it's hard for us to relate to the radical theological and the existential crisis that this created for a first century Jew. Someone who clung to their circumcision and obedience to the law at the cost of great persecution, exile, imprisonment, genocide, death, alienation. All of those things were faced so that they could be faithful to the covenant, trusting that they had in their flesh an advantage before their judge, unlike the other nations. In fact, in the deuterocanonical book of 1 Maccabees 1.15, we get this image of some Jews who became so tired of how hard it was to be connected to the covenant people of God that we are told that they disguised their circumcision and discarded the Holy Covenant and joined with the Gentiles and were sold to act wickedly. It was not easy for them to be a Jew. I believe Paul here is signaling in these verses a major movement in salvation history. That's the way that I'm understanding these. These are hard verses, but this is where I think Paul's going. See, circumcision was an Old Testament sign, a, a type that pointed to the promise of an offspring for Abraham, Israel, and David. That offspring would undo the works of Satan in the garden. He would rule forever over God's people in all kinds of life-giving ways. But we find that in Luke 2.21, there was one who did come and obeyed the will of God in every single way, at every single point. And in Luke 2.21, we find a verse that you might just skip over in your, your, your quiet time, but a verse that has massive implications. There we find that Luke records that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. That was no small event. 
The circumcised offspring that the Jews had waited so long for arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. Now you can turn your GPS off if you are a Jew because you have arrived at your destination. Jesus is here. God's Son, His Christ, has come. He's not only... He's the only Jew to be circumcised that lived that perfectly righteous life. Now later in Luke 18, 18 to 23, we find a rich, circumcised, law-abiding Jew who has kept the law from an early age, from his youth. He is someone who is really going to be confronted with what Jesus means for someone who has been placing their confidence in their identity as a Jew. And do you remember what Jesus said to him? Great, you've done all these things. You still lack just one thing. And that one thing is this. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. That's how you have the eternal life that you seek. And then he says, you can then come follow me. So what does he do? Does he say, Jesus has arrived, the circumcised son, the offspring that we've been waiting for. No, Luke 18.23 says this, when he heard this, he became very sad. He was sad before the Messiah because he was very wealthy. He had everything but one thing. Jesus. His wealth was worth more to him than the Christ. The one thing of value before God above in heaven on the last day at the judgment. All the earthly riches were not enough treasure to merit him favor with God. Now, I, I don't know what your one thing might be. As a Christian, part of sanctification is an ongoing process of seeking what it is that you are trusting other than Christ with your future. And that can be all kinds of things. It can be, I cannot be happy or satisfied. I cannot love Jesus rightly if I do not have a husband or a wife, if I don't have this particular job, if I don't get this raise, if I'm not driving this car, if I don't have my house paid down, if I don't have a, a really good retirement, if I don't have these things, I just can't have joy in my soul. I don't know what your one thing is, but part of what it means to be a Christian is finding that one thing or those one things as we go through life and seeing the value of Christ compared to that thing and leaving that thing to follow Christ. As our Messiah. See, the good things you've done for God, sacrifices you've made, your faithfulness amidst suffering when nobody noticed, the baptism when you were 10 with your childhood pastor, those are all good things, but insufficient to earn last day currency to protect you from the wrath of God. Now, if you're a non Christian, don't don't miss the math here. What Jesus tells us, what God has told us, what Paul proclaims, is that everything, obedience, circumcision, wealth, power, etc., etc., everything minus Jesus equals nothing on the last day. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus today, let me just tell you, don't leave without doing that. Don't leave without talking to me about how you can know this Christ who changes everything. But there's a second thing that we find in this text in verses 26 to 27. It's that obedience turns Gentiles into Jews. Obedience turns Gentiles into Jews. With obedience still in view, Paul draws an inference from verse 25. 
He's, he's kind of walking back the logic that he just unfolded in verse 25, where we saw that disobedience turns a Jew into a Gentile. But here he switches it in verse 26 and says, does that mean therefore that obedience turns a Gentile into a Jew? Notice verse 26, he says obedience does turn a Gentile into a Jew. He says this in verse 26, look with me. He says, so, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? See, Paul asks, what if a Gentile keeps the precepts of the law? As hard as that is to imagine. Well, precepts, this word comes from the same word group as, as justice and righteousness. Those are words that come from the same root in, in the Greek. And they describe regulations that relate to just or right living and actions. So what if a Gentile is living a righteous, just life according to God's law? So Paul asks, what if a Gentile were to live in this way according to the Mosaic law? He asks this, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Will obedience to God's law make him a Jew and an inheritor of the promises that were promised to, to Abraham and to Israel? Are those blessings going to be that guy's? Now, the, the implied answer is yes. This speaks of the future judgment where God Himself will regard this obedient non-Jew as having right relationship with God. But Paul doesn't say yes. He just jumps right to another provocative statement in verse 27. There he says, obedient Gentiles will condemn disobedient Jews. Notice what he says in verse 27 again. He says this. He says, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. Now Paul here is describing these obedient Gentiles as physically circumcised. They are law keepers. And they are also those who will condemn the Jews who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. Now, I take this to speak of the condemnation that is going to take place on the last day when Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead. He says here, obedient non-Jews will stand as witnesses against disobedient Jews on the day of judgment. Now this may be similar to the image that Jesus gives in Luke 11.32. There he's, he's talking about those Ninevites of Jonah's day who repented when they heard the preaching of that prophet Jonah who was raised from three days dead in, in the fish. And we find that he speaks to, Jesus speaks to the men of his day, and he says this, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. If you reject Jesus, it's going to be worse for you than if Nineveh had rejected Jonah. But they did not. They received him. But notice here we see a great reversal in Romans 2. Do you remember that it began with the Jews in verse 1 standing in judgment over the Gentiles? And, it, and they were being, in a sense, condemned for this. Paul was calling them out for it. But it ends here with the last judgment where Gentiles are actually standing over the Jews. 
This is, I believe, trying to awaken the Jews to the fact that your current experience and expectations, you're moving in a bad direction and you don't even know it. You're putting confidence where you shouldn't. And on the last day, a great reversal is coming for you too. But here again, just like in Romans 2, 8-15, we're left asking, who are these righteous Gentiles? We've already seen the three answers that are still in play. Uh, it could be Gentiles that were saved based on righteous lives. That's a bad answer. It could be a hypothetical righteous Gentile. A lot of people believe that that's what's going on here, that Paul is just building a case about a hypothetical person. Or third, it could be Gentile Christians. I find this to be a really difficult question, and I've spent a lot of time looking at the different options. In fact, I was looking at three different commentaries where I found three different answers. I just want to give you an example of what they said. Uh, Doug Moose says, speaking of this text, this is the end of a hypothetically uh, obedient Gentile. So he says, I think it's a hypothetical guy. Then I read Tom Schreiner, and he says, oh, this is Gentile Christians for sure. And then I got to Richard Longnecker, and he said, any attempt at answering it is in order to satisfy our own inbred curiosity. Guilty as charged. But who is this guy? Well, I think two factors in verse 27 make me think this is a Christian Gentile. First, notice that Paul highlights that ethnic Jews with physical circumcision and the written code, they have no advantage in the coming judgment. This is a new and different day from the Mosaic Covenant and the Mosaic Law where God's people were called to have circumcision as a sign of God's covenant with them. See, this signals that Paul understands that there is a, a new covenant with a new law, the law of Christ, and it is a, arrived as a fulfillment of what the old covenant pointed to. It's a new day. Second, notice verse 27. It says that the Jews have the written code, which comes from the Greek word gramma, a word for letter. Now, that language is used elsewhere in the New Testament in some very specific ways. It is a word that speaks of the letter of the law, and it, it really emphasizes the outward nature of the law in the Old Testament. How it was external. The law written externally, he says, it, it can't empower you to obey it. In fact, so many of us, when we get the rules, we were like, I didn't even think to do that until you told me, and now for some reason, I really want to. Right? Like the kid that you put a piece of chocolate cake in the room, and then you say, if you just don't eat this, it'll be good for you. Like, how hard is it going to be for them not to eat that chocolate cake? Well, that works with adults too, right? Romans 7.5 says this, the law, it says of the law, the law, the passions of sin were aroused in our members through the law. 2 Corinthians 3.6 says this, the letter kills. Now one thing that you can't miss here is that Paul sees obedience as a good thing for Jews in verse 25 and a good thing for Gentiles in verse 26. In fact, it seems like he is elevating obedience to the law above circumcision, physical circumcision. But the problem of Romans 1 and 2 is that neither Jews nor Gentiles can meet God's standard of righteous judgment. The story of the Old Testament, in fact, is that after the fall, when Adam first sinned, 
Humans can't obey God even when God hands them the rule book on tablets of stone. In fact, if you're reading through the Old Testament and you read in Exodus 32 about how God first gives the law to Moses on the mountain, the people see Him coming down, and before He can get down with the law, they are already piecing together a makeshift idol of a golden calf to worship, thus breaking the first three laws before He ever gets home. I mean, that's just a picture of the fact that even if God gives us the very rule book, we can't obey God's law and His standards left to ourselves. See, those external rules, they were never intended to bring salvation. They were intended to be teachers, to reveal our sin nature, our desperate need for God to do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. You know What the Bible shows us, I believe, if you read it from cover to cover, is that we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners by nature. We have an inclination towards sin. Our hearts are inclined towards sin like a lion is inclined towards meat. Here's a lesson that will save your life. If a lion comes running after you, don't take a bale of hay and throw it to the right and run left. Where's that lion going to run? After the meat. Every single time. And that's the same way that our hearts work. We are, by nature, have an appetite, a tendency towards sin. It's not just that we're working with a little bit less righteousness than what Adam was in the garden. There is something that has changed about our nature and our tendency towards wanting sin. We're not as bad as we could be because of God's grace, but we are not good naturally left to ourselves. You know, that's one of those aspects of the gospel that is hard to accept. To work through that, accept that, be humbled by it, to see your great need for the majesty of Jesus Christ. And if we can't see our desperate need, our desperate need as sinners by nature and by choice, for one to come and save us radically, then we will not yet see the fullness and beauty and majesty of who Jesus is and what He has done for us. But obedience to God, we need to be reminded in this text that it glorifies God. And it's good for us. Did y'all hear me? I know that sounds very simple. But we doubt it every day. Obedience to God. It glorifies Him. You can glorify God in Christ. Obedience to God, it is good for you. Those are two truths that if we really started to live off the marrow that's in those things, it would change everything. See, the world says obedience is bad. Satan says obedience is bad. It reminds me a little bit of a statement by famed actress Katherine Hepburn. At least she's credited with saying this. She says, if you, you obey all the rules, you'll miss all the fun. And I think I can identify that sometimes that's echoing in my heart. If, if you sense that, like if, I, if I'm obedient here, or I've been obedient, and it's been hard, it feels like there's got to be a fun option somewhere. Maybe it's sin. Well, I think that's a, a great quote for how the law reveals our sin nature, which goes to the heart of who we are. God says, Holiness leads to happiness. That's the way that the world works that I made. I spoke it into existence. 
Here's how it works. Obey me. Holiness leads to happiness. And sin, it always leads to sorrow. Now in a broken world, that gets really difficult. But in the world that is to come, it's going to be glorious in the way that God intended it. See, the world says obedience is bad. God says it's good. Satan lies to us and tells us all kinds of things that are not true about the nature of the reality that we live in. He says these things. Let me ask you if you've heard Satan say this in your heart, that we can't trust God to make good on His promises. God has said that life, that the best is yet to come, and I've been, it's been hard for a while, I'm not sure that it really is yet to come. That God can make good on that. That God will make good on that. Second, that sin offers more joy than righteousness. I'm guessing that any time that you've sinned intentionally, that there's something in your heart that is bought into the lie that this sin and the joy that it's promising me is greater than what obedience in this moment would look like to God. Third, that sin will not surely lead to death. It's like Eve in the garden. God said it would surely lead to death. By the time she's speaking to Satan, she's like, it will lead to death. In some way, maybe. Fourth, that God withholds the happiness that we desire from us. Is that you? You feel like today in your life, God is withholding joy from you? That He doesn't want you to experience the fullness of joy? It's a lie from hell. Or that God does not care about sparrows or little flowers and definitely not you. Right? Like God, God is not, He's not concerned with your needs. He's got bigger concerns. He's obviously asleep at the wheel or not paying attention. Or that God is most satisfied in us when we are most miserable with Him. Those are all lies. God created you, brothers and sisters, to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. That's the promise that He has given us, what He has made us for. But remember again in Romans 1.5 that Paul understands his ministry in this way. It is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of Jesus among all the nations. Paul says my gospel has an end goal of seeing a people amongst the nations, every tribe, tongue, and nation who are seeking to live lives in obedience to the glory of the God who made them. It's living in light of the King, Jesus See, Paul encourages a kind of obedience. One that springs from faith, not from flesh. Now, you'll remember that this is part of that larger argument. And we are not to Romans 3.20 yet, but it's coming. Where he says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I think the most compelling reason that these seem to be Gentile Christian comes from the relationship of verse 27 to 28 and 29. Signaled by that four. Did you see that? I think that he's, he's connecting the people he's talking about in verse 27 to those in 28 to 29. This is where I think third we see the true Jew. A true Jew has a heart circumcised by the Spirit. A true Jew has a, a heart circumcised by the Spirit. Here's what's fascinating. In verses 28 to 29, Paul describes what makes one a true Jew. And he says this, Look with me again in verses 28 to 29. He says, But a a Jew is one inwardly, or for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, 
His praise is not from man, but from God. Now here, Paul is contrasting that which is external with that which is internal. The true Jew is not one merely on the outside, one who has physical circumcision and a law that is written on tablets of stone in letters. No, instead, he says, the true Jew has a heart that is circumcised by the Spirit inwardly, not by the letter. Now, I think this language is strongly suggesting that Paul has the new covenant in mind for a couple of reasons. First, you'll notice that letter, spirit, antithesis. We see that in the rest of the New Testament and other places. But first, uh, notice that it's here, this letter, spirit, antithesis. Now, Tom Schreiner says here that this letter, spirit, antithesis is actually supporting the salvation historical character of the text. I know that's a big word, but what he's saying is that the letter and the Spirit is signaling a new day and the new covenant with the new King Jesus who has brought us uh, this new law in Christ. Now other texts like Romans 7-6, 2 Corinthians 3-6, they contrast the work of the Holy Spirit with the Mosaic law, the letter of the law. In fact, if you look in 2 Corinthians 3, 3-7, the letter is there used to talk about the Ten Commandments that were written on those tablets of stone. So this letter is highlighting the, temp- the external nature of the law. It's external. Now Romans 2 has been speaking about the inability of the law to save Jews. 2 Corinthians 3, 7-9 It later says the ministry of Moses ends in death and condemnation. The problem is that the gifts of the letter and circumcision, they do not change the inner man or woman. You can get a, a copy of the law, but it doesn't in and of itself reshape you, transform you. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Now don't miss this. The message of the Old Testament is that you can't change yourself. God must change you. You need the person of the Holy Spirit to keep the new covenant, to obey it. And the Holy Spirit comes with the new covenant ushered in by Jesus Christ. So the letter spirit antithesis here highlights a salvation historical shift that has happened. True Jews have the circumcision of the heart that God promised Old Testament Jews. But second... I also believe this speaks of Christian Gentiles because the New Covenant promised circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. So the the New Covenant promised these things that Paul is saying are at play. Uh, You'll remember that this circumcision of the heart, it was a thing that Jews were called to look to do as well. So if you look in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, God is speaking to Israel. And He says, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. He's calling for humility and obedience to Him. He says, you circumcise your heart. A lot happens between Deuteronomy 10 and Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. But there, God speaks of a coming judgment. And after that, He promises that He's going to restore His rebellious, stubborn people. And He promises them there that they will not circumcise their hearts, but He will. He says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. See, God's telling 
His people, He Himself, will circumcise their hearts because they can't change themselves. Circumcision of heart, that is an eschatological, end times, last day reality that would come with that promised new covenant. So in Jeremiah 31, 31-34, He speaks of this new covenant and He uses similar language. He says, in the new covenant, God would write the law on the heart and He would forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. And then in Ezekiel 36, 26-27, God promised to take out the heart of stone and put His Spirit in His people. So the connection of the Spirit of God and circumcision and this law on the heart appears throughout the Old Testament associated with the New Covenant. And then in Philippians 3.3, we see that Paul writes there, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now think about this reality. The externals of possessing the law and circumcision. He says they do not make you a true Jew. Heart circumcision from the Holy Spirit and the law written on the heart promised in the New Covenant does. And Paul then ends this saying this of the true Jew, whether he is ethnically Jew or Gentile, his praise is not from man, but from God. Now these are life-altering words. Here's what I think these verses, how they connect into what Paul's been saying about the obedience of faith. He says, works that we seek to manufacture in and of ourselves, they do not please God. If we think that we can please God apart from God, then we are going to always end up empty and we're never going to please God. They give us no hope before Him on the last day. But, don't miss this. This is, this is great stuff. Our works done in and through the Spirit of God, by virtue of us being in Christ, result in praise not from man, but from God. How many of you would love to know that you had lived a life that was worthy of praise from God? How many of you, when you hear that, feel like that almost sounds blasphemous? That God would look with favor on His people? I mean, to give them praise? Let me close with three applications quickly. Two or three. We'll see what we can get to. First, I think we need to acknowledge that, that baptism does not replace physical circumcision in the Old Testament. We have not replaced one outward sign with another outward sign. There are obvious differences between circumcision and baptism that you probably can quickly note. For instance, we do not, we do baptize girls. That's one. But also, physical circumcision prepared for a greater circumcision of the heart promised by Jesus, whereas Jeremiah 31 and Joel 2 28 to 32 promised that everyone from the least to the greatest sons and daughters would possess the Holy Spirit and know God in a more intimate way than they did in the Old Testament. There is an escalation that has happened now that Jesus has come. It is a new day. It is not just like the Old Testament plus a little Jesus. 
Jesus has changed everything. Physical circumcision, it, it has been satisfied by Christ who came and was circumcised and lived a perfect life, a righteous life on our behalf so that He might die and be raised and send His Spirit to regenerate, sanctify, seal, and circumcise the heart of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus came to do. So physical circumcision was an external sign that pointed to the reality that they were looking forward to coming. It was a future hope. But baptism is a sign that the new and better covenant in Christ has come. And it is an outward display of an inward hidden reality in a place where only God sees the core of who we are. And it is there that He Himself with His own hands has circumcised us spiritually. We have a new hearts. This is why we baptize believers at, at Trinity Bible Church. Is we believe that what that sign means is that someone has put their faith in Christ, that they have been raised again and regenerated by the power of the Spirit and confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, that they are one whom we will see forever with Christ in the end, that they have been united by faith to Christ Himself as King. So let me just encourage you, if, if you're here this morning, you've not been baptized as a believer, let us know so that we can baptize you. That's what Jesus calls us to do in Matthew 28 with all authority in heaven and on earth. He tells us to baptize believers from every nation. But second, works that are the fruit of the Spirit's work are necessary to be saved. But let me just say that again. Works that are the fruit of the Spirit's work are necessary to be saved. Now hang with me, don't miss this. The New Testament is really like pro-obedience to God. Did y'all know that? Like Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, First John, right? Like that's just part of what it means to be a believer. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.19, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So while the Old Covenant reveals sin that leads to death, the New Covenant reveals Christ and empowers obedience by the Holy Spirit. Now, just to be clear, we don't believe in perfectionism like John Wesley taught. That's, that's not what we're advocating. That this side of Jesus coming back, that you're ever going to get to like 100% on every day, past and present uh, in your life. That, that's not what we're saying. In the Old Testament, they had sacrifices. It, it was understood that, like, that living an obedient life to God meant the need of sacrifices. And in the New Testament, Jesus died as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins once for all. It's a new day. We still sin. In fact, 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what's changed? Well, it's that we have the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We don't need more sacrifices. It's that when we confess, He is faithful and just to forgive us because of what He paid at the cross. No, instead, what our obedience does is it shows that we really have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit to good works that glorify God. Here's why this is so important. We can't please God outside of Christ. We don't receive praise from God outside of Christ. We receive wrath and judgment justly. But if we are in Christ and we have been given His Spirit, what we are told is that our Spirit-empowered efforts receive the praise of God. 
that God really does look on our lives with favor, not with wrath. I mean, think about the nature of the reality that we're stepping into in Christ. So here's what that means. That means that our obedience in Christ matters. In other words, when you come to faith in Christ, we aren't advocating for a kind of grace that says, you know what, Jesus died for all my sins, so I guess it's okay if I sin, it's not that big of a deal. Jesus went to the cross because obedience matters. Jesus went to the cross so that you could, by virtue of the power of the Holy Spirit, please God. I mean, what a joyful thing. What, what more would you want in life than receive praise from God? Our obedience to Christ matters. This really is, I believe, mind-blowing, life-altering stuff. If grace and the gospel cause you to think that obeying God is not a big deal because Jesus paid it all, you've drastically misunderstood the nature of what Jesus has accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. If Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. A life shaped by the reality that reveals that we really have received the Holy Spirit. And if we have received the Holy Spirit, we will look differently. Maybe not from hour to hour or day to day, but as we look from month to month and year to year, what we'll see is that we will more and more from one degree of glory to the next look like Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we come before you, I'm sure there are many here who, Father, as they think about the nature of Jesus Christ and this radical reality that you have said that those in Christ will receive praise on the last day, that you will, as Zephaniah speaks of, sing over your people. Father, it is a humbling one that makes us ask, can this be true? But Father, you have told us this is true in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray that what this has done is encouraged our souls to want to live for obedience in you, to repent of our sins. As we prepare our hearts to come to the communion table, Father, we pray that you would awaken us to areas of our life where we have not been obedient, where we have believed the lies of Satan and we have disobeyed you, Lord, that you would call us back to confess those sins, to seek Christ afresh, to see what his cross means for us today and transform us more into the image of your Son. Lord, do this to the glory of your name we do pray. Amen.